So, Jesus has um, most recently in this description been in the synagogue and the man with the withered hand was there and he healed him. The Pharisees, verse 6, immediately plotted with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. Uh, Pharisees working with Herodians is remarkable. Um, they were avowed enemies. And, um, you know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And that's where they're at. Uh, you would never see these guys um, cooperating together uh, under any circumstances. Um, they might show up in the same location uh, and then argue with one another, but um, they're, they're not going to be uh, working. They're working together to kill Jesus. So, uh, you know, the plot thickens, as we say. Verse 7, But Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great multitude from Galilee followed him, and from Judea, and Jerusalem, and Idumea, and beyond the Jordan, and those from Tyre and Sidon, a great multitude, when they heard how many things he was doing, came to him. Now, <clears throat> I mentioned this morning, I wear my heart on my shirt sleeve, so, you know, things that bug me, I tend to harp on those. And some people, you know, don't even have any inkling to what's, what this pertains to. But I would say... Tuck some of this stuff away and use it, because um, this here mentions the Idumea, you know, beyond the Jordan. <clears throat> so you're talking about Gentiles, Tyre and Sidon, right, who are coming uh, to this region to hear from Jesus. They're, uh, you know, our, you know, ministers today, uh, uh, Les Feldick is on the internet, and Les Feldick has a, a following of tens of thousands of people who tune into him, and he's, <clears throat> boy, if he stripped some of the stuff away, he's, he's really educated. He understands a lot about the scripture. And, you know, some people put someone down in order to stand on them and raise themselves up, and I hope that's not what I'm doing. Um, Les does a thing where he he says that as Gentiles, um, uh, I don't know if he goes as far as saying that we shouldn't study the teachings of Jesus or the rest of the Bible, but he says all we need to study are the teachings of Paul. Because Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. And so that's, that's all he does. That's all he teaches. He, he just always in Paul's letters. It's very fruitful. You know, there's a lot of stuff there, there's, there's very few, but you know, Paul also said, right? I'm, I'm, I'm innocent of all men's blood because I have not failed to declare to you the whole counsel of God's word. Okay? So, so when Paul says that, he's talking about the Old Testament, right? All of the Old Testament. So, you know, there's the entirety of the scripture needs to be taught. And here's Jesus, right? Feldick takes an approach and says, oh no, see, <clears throat> Jesus sent the apostles out amongst the Jews and told them specifically to not go amongst the Gentiles. So the implication is, you know, he's implying that they never ministered to Gentiles. Totally false, right? Uh, you know, to be clear, Samar uh, Samaritans are Gentiles, okay? Uh, you know, you've got <clears throat> an off-scouring of Israel that was left behind 586 B.C. when uh, the captivity occurred, and <clears throat> Assyria and then Babylon had developed this practice when they conquered nations to take um, captives from other nations and shuffle them around so that you know, essentially, everyone you're living around is a foreigner in whatever land you're in. Take the Jews, transport them over to Babylon, take these guys, put them down in Israel, and shuffle the deck. So that, 
they don't have that sense of patriotism. They don't have an understanding of their environment. Uh, if anyone is around, the language is foreign to them. It, it creates, uh, it subdues their captives. <clears throat> so the few remnant people of Israel intermarried with those captives that had been transplanted there. And we even read uh, of, of how uh, they became essentially the Samaritans in time. But you know, they, they together, living together in Israel, uh, were having a terrible time, contacted the king of Babylon and said, uh, we're offending the God of this region and you need to send us uh, priests of the God of this region who will teach us how to worship him so we'll stop offending him and, um, you know, receive his blessing. It was a very pagan mindset. It wasn't Jewish mindset of all of the God of Israel. You know, uh, they had this mindset like there was a God of the mountains. So when you fought the people of the mountains, you wanted to lure them down into the valley because you didn't want to fight in the mountains where their God had authority. You needed to get them out of that environment. So these people all transported into Israel are being attacked by animals and having all kinds of terrible problems and they're, they're, they're thinking in a pagan way we need to figure out how to worship this God. So they actually send priests back to Israel who teach that intermingled uh, people uh, how to worship God. But they, they do it in a very warped sense. They don't do it according to the precepts of the Bible. Uh, so, so you have this... Uh, and, and to be clear, it's not so much the, the bloodline as it is this strange, intermingled religious belief system of people that become the Samaritans so that when Israel returns, that's why Israel is so uh, opposed to them, in particular Ezra and Nehemiah uh, rebuilding the temple and the walls of Jerusalem, and the Samaritans show up, and they're like, hey, they weren't yet called Samaritans, but those people collectively showed up and said, you know, we're into it, we'll help you rebuild, and you know, let's start worshiping the Lord together, and and there, uh, Ezra and Nehemiah and all of that leadership made strong opposition to them and said, absolutely not, you're not Jewish, you will not have part of, of what we are doing here. <clears throat> Point being, they're foreigners. They're a mixed race and a mixed religion of people. Who does Jesus reveal that he is the Christ to first? Very first person, right? Others guess at it. Others suspect it, right? Things are sort of alluded to, but he tells the Samaritan woman, I am the Messiah, right? Jesus goes to the Gentiles. Uh, he, he is ministering to Gentiles. And we find people in our culture, like Les Feldick, who they, they find a niche, even if it's a self-created weird one, right? Who people grab a hold of that idea and cluster together. And then they become very insistent. Why in the world would I ever tell someone to not learn the teachings of Jesus? That's just, that's a really absurd concept right there. You know, they're, they're implying in the end that there's a different gospel and that there's a different salvation. You know, when you say things like that, like, oh, we read the words of God. Anyway, so I said, it's my particular bents and I go off on them. But, you know, tuck it away. And don't get sucked into that. If you run into somebody uh, that's been ensnared in that mindset. Um, and I, I hate to say it this way, but it is every single situation I've run into, it is the truth. Arrogance is what's behind that pride. You know, I, you know it's, it's really a, a modern brand of Gnosticism, right? We have the special knowledge. And if, you, if you'll come hang out with us, uh, we'll impart it to you. You know, it, it, you know, the saying, you know, thousands of years have passed and in no one within Christianity, the most devoted men and women of history who sacrificed their lives, served the Lord, they didn't notice these things. But you show up 
on the internet and wow, you're more brilliant than everybody in history. That's good for you. Uh, the, the arrogance involved in that. So they are in this region. Jesus is ministering uh, to the people of Jerusalem, Idumea, across the Jordan, Tyre and Sidon, a great multitude, great multitude. Uh, not a few hundred people. This isn't, you know, um, I always say, you know, not a Hollywood set of a couple hundred extras, <laughs> you know, trying to make it look like, this is thousands of people, thousands of people, multitude, uh, it, it, it within itself means thousands, right? <clears throat> By definition, great multitudes is a multiplication of those things. We're going to see as this goes on, thronging multitudes. There, there are historic accounts that tell us the distances of land coverage that crowds covered. You're talking about 50,000 people gathered at, at one occasion to listen to Jesus Christ. His popularity is booming, and people are responding. Why? He's feeding people. He's, he's healing people. He's casting out demons. Right? He's restoring limbs. He's restoring body parts that have been lost to people. He's, he's making them whole. Literally, those who have lost parts being made whole. Imagine what that would do to the crowd, the sensationalism of that actually happening. Blow people's minds in the process. So they're, they're gathering, they're listening to him, going to him. So he just told his disciples that a small boat should be kept ready for him because of the multitude, lest they should crush him. Um, you know, if you've been in the concerts, been in those thronging crowds, um, it's not the people immediately around you that are crushing you. It's the 10,000 behind them that are pressing forward to try and experience the front row, you know, and, and you've literally got the weight of all of that behind. And, and Jesus experiencing that. People are desperate, right? They're desperate to experience what Jesus is offering. I would insert that our culture is desperate right now. Okay. Um, it, it is um, sedated and passive, in a lot of ways, um, part of it is actually medication and drugs that people are sedating themselves with, you know, from their doctor, antidepressants, antipsychotic, you know, anti-anxieties. They're, they're, they're oppressing the fire alarm, spiritual fire alarm that's going off in their heart, telling them, you should be anxiety-ridden, <laughs> rather than deal with the fire they take a chemical that, you know, effectively pulls the battery out of the alarm, <laughs> you know, muffles the noise, deadens uh, what they're hearing. Uh, then there's also just the depressive hopelessness, you know, the culture that, that might not be exuberant and anxious to hear these things. Um, part of that is just they've, they've heard so much junk. Uh, you know, th this generation of young people right now uh, is the most informed generation in world history. But their information is just a pile of junk. You know, and just, the truth is in there also. But, you know, imagine when you've just waded through the pile your whole life looking for an answer. And everything you picked up, you might have even handled the truth somewhere along the way. But everything along the way, you're just left with, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. And that's, that's where our culture is confused and lost. The desperation's still there. And sometimes you've got to pick at it. You've got to, you know, push the right buttons. You've got to engage in conversation and get people uh, talking. Most of us know this, but the three basic questions... That's what you're going to dwell on. How did I get here? What am I doing here? Where do I go when it's all done? But that's philosophy in a nutshell. And in that, uh, a lot of people have just answered all three of those questions with, 
I don't know or I don't care. You know, some people have very complex answers. And, and their answer to how did I get here is different than what am I doing here, than where am I going on, but, you know, there's, there's weird things, right? My answer to all of that is Jesus. How did I get here, Jesus? What am I doing here, Jesus? Where am I going when I'm done, Jesus? Pretty simple. That's the process. Keeps it nice and neat. Keeps me very content along the way, regardless of what things come along to dissuade us, but engage people on that level. You know, I don't know how to evangelize people. I don't know how to talk to people. What would I ever say? Well, uh, you got you got three things in your corner, right? <clears throat> what I just shared with you. Where did I come from? What am I doing here? Where do I go when I leave? Uh, second thing is your own testimony. Uh, you were a creep before you met Jesus. And you met Jesus. And you met Jesus. Now, some of us were like extraordinary creeps. Others of us were extraordinarily mild creeps, okay? Uh, but we we're all, you know, creepy. Uh, and then you just, you got to know the Bible. And by that I mean John 3.16. <laughs> and there you go. You can preach to the whole world. How did you get here? What are you doing here? Where do you go when you're done? Right? Your testimony combined with God's so the world that he gave his only begotten son. Right? Who, whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. That that is it is really a simple program. And if you just run that on a loop <laughs> to the person that you talk to, you know, you'll expand, you'll get more sophisticated in the process as time goes by. But but that's the process right there. Just the simplicity of our message and what Christ has done for us. So they're desperate, they're crushing in. Before he healed many, so that as many as had afflictions pressed about him to touch him, and the unclean spirits, whenever they saw him, fell down before him and cried out, saying, You are the Son of God. And he sternly warned them that they should not make him known, warned the demons to keep their mouths shut. You know, there's a fascination with demons, angels, the spiritual. Um, there's an appropriate uh, knowledge that you can desire, but uh, there's an inappropriate fascination that some people have, uh, particularly with the demonic. And, um, you know, certain elements of Christianity promote this concept. Um, recently, uh, there's this whole thing going on of uh, people, um, you know, supposed ministers casting out demons, and they're they're making uh, the demon confess his name. So you know, they're, they're you know you know if he's you know pretending to be mute or being mute, then they'll, they'll demand that he speak. It's just a, a load of nonsense, right? Uh, you know, the scripture tells us Jesus. Jesus actually says it uh, in regard to this passage in other gospels. He says that I drive out these demons by the finger of God. Okay, well, Jesus himself is referred to as the finger of God, but you know, my own personal uh, weird mind praying about that and and looking for a way to illustrate that because because he doesn't show us these massive demonstrations of conflict. Right? Shut your mouth. Get out. Right, as quick as that. Uh, very, very little. You know, the chapter five when we roll into the Gadarean uh, incident, you get some interchange that goes on there, but it's the only instance that we have. The rest of the time, it's shut up and move on. And uh, and and frankly, uh, a couple of the times uh, he speaks so harshly that it is literally in a modern vernacular. It would be shut up. You know, not, not a, you know, stop talking. You know, not, it isn't even polite. It's shut up and get out. Um, you know, I, uh, praying about this, I feel like the, the Holy Spirit gave me the illustration of there were times in raising my children where you've had enough as a parent. I mean, appropriately, you've, you've been gracious, you've been kind, you've said everything you say, and you finally just get to the point where whatever you're saying, you just point. You know, he's driving these demons out by the finger of God. Just, you know, shut up and get out. 
it's not, uh, you want to share with the rest of us? Okay. Um, so, uh, well, I was distracted, so I figured I'd let the rest of you on the distraction. So, awesome. Um, so here, uh, you know, he's, he's uh, making them be quiet. I was talked about the fact that this is largely because he doesn't want negative or positive press to create a circumstance that's outside God's plan. Okay, God's plan is that on April 6, 32 AD, Jesus Christ is going to ride into Jerusalem and be declared the Messiah. And he wants that to happen at the appropriate time. And then obviously, um, you know, everyone's hailing him as king. But then just a week later, they're all shouting crucify, right? And not only does it need to happen that he's crucified exactly on Passover, but he needs to be resurrected so that that morning there is the priest in before the Lord waving the shock of grain, right? The, the beginning of what's going to be Pentecost. The, the ingathering has begun. Jesus Christ's resurrection is the new fruit. <laughs> the new harvest is coming, right? And then, you know, 50 days later, you come to Pentecost. The Holy Spirit falls, Peter preaches, and 3,000 people come to the Lord. That timing, right? Time. Jesus doesn't want anybody messing with his timing, especially demons. You know, shut your mouth and just get out and move on. I, I make a big deal of that because, you know, I think people, like I just described, they go the other direction with sensationalism about making demons speak or making them be silent or whatever that weirdness is. And, you know, I've, I've only had encounters with the demonic a couple times in, you know, my entire life. And, uh, you know, there are times I've suspected there's other times where we go, okay, you know, that's, that's clearly not of the Lord. It's clearly supernatural and clearly of, you know, demonic power. So <clears throat> making a big deal of the wrong subject is, is unbiblical. We, we want to stay the course, teach God's word, and encourage people in their relationship with the Lord. Some people just like the roller coaster. You know what I'm saying? This is always going to be something fantastic. If they're not nauseated, then, you know, probably they're, they're not getting what they, that's how they think about the process. So, verse 13. He went up on the mountain and called to him those he himself wanted, and they came to him. Then he appointed twelve that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach. Now, here's the deal. <clears throat> um, this is more than 12. Okay, we're going to get the list of the 12, <clears throat> but we get all the way to the end of the ministry, death, burial, resurrection, and then Peter, with the 120, is looking to fulfill the scripture, which I insist was actually fulfilled in Acts chapter 9 when Paul was made an apostle of Jesus Christ, but he recognizes Psalm 109, verse 8, which in the 90s, you saw bumper stickers that just said Bill Clinton, Psalm 109, verse 8, which says, may his days be cut short and another take his place of office. So, um, you know, you can probably use that with whatever politician you're currently opposed to. Um, just refresh the t-shirt and the bumper sticker all along the way. But point being, Peter recognized that that was referring to Judas. His days were cut short and another needed to take the place of office. And so they make the statement that there were 120 there who had been with Jesus throughout his entire ministry, right? Others came and went. You'll remember Right? <clears throat> that when Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood, that there was a great number that left at that point and no longer followed him. So there was 120 that had been through the thick and the thin uh, in the process. And they were workers and supporters of Jesus' ministry. Um, church history tells us that they actually um, worked and did jobs and did ministry and cared for and prepared meals and, and they, they were the actual 
you know, helps, as uh, Paul would say, as far as the gifting of the Holy Spirit. They were there. You think of Mary and Martha and, and uh, you know, others like them that, uh, you know, were so dedicated to Jesus' ministry and what it was he was doing. So we can safely assume that th- that group is all here because when we get to Acts, uh, Peter tells us that there were 120 who had been with Jesus from the beginning. Right, so amongst them, you've got another what 70, 72 who were sent out to minister. The twelve we know were amongst that group. Then you have the twelve, and you also have three, right? Peter, James, and John. And some would say then there's also the one Peter. I would say how about there's also the one John, right? The disciple whom Jesus loved. Point there. Uh, you know, this whole thing of, oh, churches are really clicky. <clears throat> well, apparently Jesus was. Right? There are people you like to hang out with. There are people you don't like to hang out with. You know, we don't intend. It's not always something evil, right? Yeah. You got certain friends. I got, you know... Like if you classify things, you get a really weird genre of people that we associate with. You know, I got a whole bunch of people that hang out with me for a whole lot of other reasons, but then we get to heavy metal, and they're like, "Yeah, see you later." You know, <laughs> I don't want anything to do with that. You know, my my taste in music repels a certain group. You know, my my wife and Alexis both say, "Why are they so mad?" You know, when they listen. Uh, with me, and we're talking Christian metal. Uh, so uh, you know, it, it's just taste. It's it, Jesus. His life is about ministry, and that's it. His his whole life is about his father's business, right? What did he say to Mary? How is it you didn't know? It'd be about my father's business. That's that's gonna thin the crowd, right? There there are some people who are like, yeah, I like the kingdom, but you know, I notice you hang out with fishermen. I really well, Jesus is saying, well, I don't really like to fish unless I have to pay my taxes. You know, so he's he's got certain things that he isn't inclined towards that are going to not necessarily be things that people like. We shouldn't we shouldn't walk into a group and think, oh, these guys are all into this or that. You know, therefore I can't hang out with them. You know, our good friend uh, Gary Clark down in uh, Gloucester County, uh, New Jersey, had us down. Gary is a golf nut. Okay, I mean, you, you lost me right there. I'm, 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 I am all done with golf. I mean, I, I have used a cannon that you can fire golf balls out of, so I, I understand certain purposes for golf balls. But you know, if we can play golf that way, maybe I'd be more interested. You know, high-pressurized air cannons firing. That would be pretty cool. Anyway, you understand my point. It's okay to have friends and others that you're not so close to. What's the common bond, right? Jesus Christ, man. I don't care if you're a brain surgeon, you know, hang out with you. Don't care if you're a gutter dweller, man. Jesus in your heart, wonderful. We are all the same in the process. Jesus here, right? goes up the mountain to thin the crowd. All the non-mountain climbers <laughs> stay behind, right? But you got to be dedicated, right? Disciple. Discipline. Disciplined follower. you got to be a disciplined follower to follow Jesus up the mountain in the process so that he can sit down and preach to them. So he appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have power to heal sickness and cast out demons. There's some interesting things along the way. Um, you know, some of my Pentecostal brothers, you know, get into conversations and they insist, you know, Pentecost and, and the, the, you know, baptism of the Holy Spirit and then, you know, there, that's, receiving of the Holy Spirit, and you know, that's what you're looking for. And you're great. We all need that. That's an absolute truth. I, I abide by that necessity. I'll quickly ask them, like, when did the apostles receive the Holy Spirit? And they're almost always just, you know, 
shoot from the hip and, you know, Acts chapter 2. No. no. John chapter 20, right? Jesus breathed upon them and said, Receive ye the Holy Spirit. Okay? How are they casting out demons and healing the sick right here? Right? By the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay? So, so we have these incremental relationships that develop with the Holy Spirit. Sometimes people get the whole package all at once. Other times people get them in the phases, right? Paracletus alongside, you know, guiding, instructing, steering, you know, bringing towards the Lord. You know, then you have that whole thing of the in, you know, N in the Greek, to take in the Holy Spirit. And then the baptismo, to be completely submerged, into the Holy Spirit. So here uh, we see some beginnings of, of the Lord's touch, his power, his presence upon them, healing, sickness, casting out demons. 16, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. Significant in regard to that later occasion where Jesus asks the group, particularly Peter, you know, who do people say that I am? And uh, they, the opinions fly around. Oh, you're, you know, one of the prophets. You're Elijah. You know, some say John the Baptist resurrected. All these different things. Uh, who do you say that I am? You're the Christ. Peter says. Uh, you know, Jesus says, Oh, you know, flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you, but the Holy Spirit has revealed that to you. And then he makes the statement: Upon this rock, I will build my church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. Um, Sub-subject within the sub-subject. Uh, the gates of hell, yes, he was at the location he was commonly referred to in the pagan idolatry as the gates of hell. But the gates of any city is where court was held, right? Where the authority and the power was located, where plans for war were waged in the gates of the city. It was city hall is what you're talking about. Forget the image of an iron gate. It's the entryway to the city where all authority was seated and all business was done. The gates of hell will not prevail against the kingdom of God, against Jesus Christ's authority, the fact that he is the Christ. Uh, upon this rock was referring to his being the Christ, not upon Peter, which the Roman Catholic institution incorrectly assigns to Peter. This statement, right, you have Petra, the, the giant rock, the Petros, the small portion of rock that's being spoken to. Don't you hate it when you've got a Petros in your shoe? You know, that little pebble that you just, you finally you've put up with it and you gotta, you gotta stop and do you just shake it off. Oh, yeah, it's like, Vacation once you put that thing back on without that in your shoe. Uh, Peter does prove to be hard and strong, but he also proves to be an annoyance. And I don't say that smugly. You, know, you go all the way up to Paul, and Paul has to confront Peter over his being a man pleaser, right? He, he was eating with the Gentiles, you know, having BLTs and pork chops with everybody else. And the Jews from Jerusalem show up and he won't even sit on the Gentile side of the cafeteria anymore. And Paul rebukes him openly, saying, you're even leading the ministers astray with your behavior. You know, we're, we're being saved in the same way that the Gentiles are through the grace of God. So, so Peter, amazing as he is, he has these shortcomings. And uh, this assignment of this name to him shouldn't be inappropriately connected to the foundation, uh, you know, the cornerstone of, of God's kingdom of Jesus building the church. That's Jesus. Right? He is the rock. And he is the foundation and cornerstone by which the entire structure is set, formed, and built. He's referring to his own authority, his own power, and his own position as Christ when he makes that statement. So here, you know, he's assigned that pet name. It's very affectionate. Uh, your name is going to be Peter. Uh, James, the son of Zebedee, 
and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name, uh, uh, I never say it right, Bonerges, that is, sons of thunder. And the question is raised, you know, if they are sons of thunder, then who's thunder? You know, that could have been their mom, right? Seriously, uh, later on, she's bringing the boys to Jesus and inspiring the question of, hey, when um, you enter your kingdom, um, what I want you to do is uh, give the boys, uh, you know, the position at your right hand and on your left hand. Now, now think about that, right? She has no idea what she's asking for because when Jesus enters his kingdom, there's a thief at his right hand and his left hand at the cross. And Jesus actually alludes to their future deaths in that moment. He say, you don't know what you're asking and you will <laughs> experience uh, the same, I'm paraphrasing, but you will experience the same thing I'm going to experience as I enter my kingdom. You're going to experience death and the process and both of them ultimately did sacrifice their lives. So sons of thunder, they're also maybe, you know, if you ask them, they would say, we're sons of, you know, lightning. Because <laughs> they, they wanted to call fire down from heaven and destroy uh, the people. They, you know, just, you know, try to find a room for Jesus and no, uh, you know, no hotels available. And so they decide that the entire community needs to be killed uh, as, as a, you know, result of the fact that they're being so you know, unhospitable to the Messiah. So let's just wipe everybody out. You know, so maybe they're thinking of themselves as, you know, the sons of lightning. And, you know, he's just like, well, really, you you know, you don't have any power. You're really just a big noise. Um, so you're, you know, sons of thunder. I don't know where it comes from. Uh, it is an affectionate term, uh, but, you know, it's also playful. And, uh, you know, here come the sons of thunder, you know. They probably only used that when they were being loud mouths, right? You know, as they were running on, you know, saying absurd things along the way. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, wonderful names in uh, the entirety of the, the truth. Andrew, uh, always bringing people to Jesus Christ. You know, a, a son of consolation and just always wanting people to know Jesus. You know, taking the message of Jesus to people. Just an incredible example. So, you know, there are a few that stand out so strong. Matthew, uh, Levi, right, tax collector. Uh, we talked about the fact that he, you know, should have been uh, serving in the priesthood theoretically, and instead he's taking the ultimate position of betrayal against his countrymen by serving Rome and collecting taxes against them. Uh, Thomas, uh, we unfortunately often refer to him as uh, doubting Thomas. Right, but but you know, think about the great faith that Thomas displays at times, saying, "Well, it looks like the death sentence, so why don't we all just go with him and get killed with him?" You know, so people have things to say. Um, you know, that whole thing of optimist, pessimist. Probably Thomas was just the realist amongst them. <laughs> it was like, you know, when I see it, then I'll believe. Was uh, the attitude, and Jesus, you know, rebukes that, and that isn't. The, the right approach. Uh, you know, the just shall, you know, walk by faith, not by sight. So, you know, there are things there. James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanite, Simon the Zealot, right? This term also uh, that we see uh, uh, the 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 uh, the Zealot when it's uh, referred to that the uh, History tells us they were also referred to as daggermen, and um, they they were um, they were assassins. They they killed, you know, not too frequently, but they they were responsible for killing uh, Roman soldiers. Uh, they they uh, went through training. They learned uh, Roman armor. They carried uh, a very large dagger, usually up their left sleeve. They had they had a holster, a sheath that it was attached to, and they had that up there. Let's see, most people are right-handed, and they would reach in, retrieve the dagger, plunge it under the armor. Uh, there were a couple spots through uh, the kidney, through the lung. Uh, you've completely incapacitated the soldier, 
uh, in the process. So you've taken the fight right out of him. And he's only got a few seconds to survive. And they did it very stealthily. Stab, retrieve, plant, and run. And uh, very rarely were they caught. So Jesus knows uh, who this man is and chooses him. I wonder if he ever sent Matthew and you know the zealot out together to do ministry. I don't, you know, know. Sometimes Jesus does that with us. He puts us with people who are very opposite ourselves uh, to sharpen us. You know, sharpen one another and uh, train us and teach us. No, you never recognize that. You struggle with patience, and God put you with the most annoying person you've ever met in your life, and 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 like you you are now employed in the same location, and you cannot escape. They've ever been assigned the same shift, you know. What I'm saying, I mean, your names have the last letter at the beginning, and you have to get your paycheck at the same time, and you just you cannot get away from this person. And people say those things about you know, oh Lord, teach me patience. Now, what they're saying is, you know, wave a magic wand over me and make me patient. And how we learn patience is God puts us in incredibly annoying circumstances so that we have to actually exercise patience in the process. Or whatever your thing is, right? You know, maybe we struggle with laziness and he puts us with the most energetic person in the world. And you just got to dog all day because that's how they are. Or vice versa. You're the most energetic person in the world. And he puts you with this, the person with the most slow pace you've ever met in your life. Right? And he's going to teach you. He's going to teach them. Right? He, uh, he has purposes for both. He, he understands the process. This is a this is the island of misfit toys right here. This is a crazy collection of guys to scoop up. You would not, if you're building a company, if you're building a team, this is not the team you put together at all. Right? You, you, you look for all of the cream of the crop. This is not the cream of the crop at all. They're, they're, they're fiercely independent. They're all kind of, no. How much do we read about them arguing? I'm the greatest in the kingdom. I'm going to be the greatest in the kingdom. I'm going to be the greatest in the kingdom. They, they are self-centered, egotistical, you know, self-motivated. It's, it's crazy. Jesus intended this. He intended it for them. He intended it for the church. And he intended it for you and I. That as we would read it, we would recognize, oh, yeah, I see what the Lord's doing in my life right now. I see how the Lord is using circumstances to mold and shape and construct me for his purposes and for the good of the body of Christ. We're so self-centered. It's crazy. It's crazy how self-centered we are. And uh, when we begin to realize that, right, what's that bumper sticker say? Only you can cure narcissism. Just, it's a whole deal, man. Got to get over yourself, body yourself, in the process. You guys see the thing downtown? Looks like a post-it note on the side of the building. Uh, things to do. And it says mural and it's got like the empty box. So they, apparently they're preparing to put a mural there. Um, uh, I don't remember Gene's last name. But years ago, Calvary Chapel Bangalore, a bunch of brothers living together. Uh, one of the guys that was living there, his name was Gene. And uh, Gene actually put, because it's guys, imagine what a comfortable place that is, living in a monastic cave with, you know, like six other guys. And um, uh, there's always friction and sharpening and things going on. And Gene put a note on the fridge that said, note to self, die. And I think that's a great t-shirt in the making right there. That's, that's wait, waiting to happen. So, you know, take it to heart yourself. That's what uh, a lot of what's going to be happening uh, amongst them. And then, of course, Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him, and they went into a house. So, um, the you're going to run into what is, you know, other ancient writings that some people want to say are equal to or assigned to or belong in the Bible, and that's completely false. The Holy Spirit has done his work, and the 66 books that you have in your hand are the ones that belong together for the body of Christ. Okay? They're sometimes referred to as the canonized 
word of God and you get the impression like, ooh, you know, they must have had like, you know, a canonized meeting and a canonized vote and I just, yeah, everybody, you know, you know, everybody in favor of Genesis, I, you know, Exodus and I. That's not how it went down. Um, uh, what went on was uh, the people filled with the Holy Spirit were reading all of these ancient writings and they would bring it up to one another. Hey, well, what do you think about the Book of Enoch? Yeah, see, I stopped reading that. Hey, there, there are conflicts. There are things that are wrong with it. There are gross inaccuracies in it, so I don't study the Book of Enoch anymore. Oh, so you don't read it. Uh, uh, what about uh, the Books of Wisdom? Well, you know, Proverbs is much better. Uh, you know, the Books of Wisdom are good, but, you know, Solomon also did go astray. He had a thousand lives. You know, he built temples to pagan gods. His heart was not loyal to the Lord like his father David's was. So, you know, some of the things contained within the Books of Wisdom pertain to earthly things and aren't really classified under godly wisdom. That's why the book of Proverbs is so we don't really read the book of wisdom. And you come down to the fact that the word canonized means read. That which was read. Right? The church was reading the 66 books that you have. That's what it means by canonized. Right? And the ones that were not being read... That's just that. That's just what it means. These books were being read. Those books were not being read. These were canonized. Those were not canonized. Read or not read is what you're talking about. In the first hundred years, actually 70 AD, we have these 66 books uh, assembled uh, together, literally bound together with leather thongs. You know, the, the, the church had already come to the place where they said, these are the books you need to read. Okay. Uh, the Gospel of Judas. <laughs> what an absurd title, right? Uh, good news, right? That's what gospel means. Good news. What good news does Judas have that we should listen to this, you know, lunatic and what he has to write? Uh, you know, the Gospel of Judas was not written by Judas. It was written by an entirely different religious group known as the Gnostics. It wasn't even written in Israel. It was written in Nag Hammadi, Egypt. And it was 350 years after Jesus' life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. 350 years later. And we don't need to listen to the gospel of Jesus. It doesn't matter how impressive you know, Nova's documentary is on it. You know, the Gospel of Thomas. You know, all these different books you're going to come across. You want to read, you know, some of those? Great. They're interesting. You know, so wasn't, you know, Tom Sawyer, Huckleberry Finn, right? You know, uh, the Odyssey of Homer. You know, there's, there's lots of books out there that we can even gain insight from that are, you know, interesting to read. You want the Word of God unadulterated? That's what you have in your hands. Judas was a betrayer, right? The Gospel of Judas, written by the uh, Gnostics, Nagamari Egypt, says that Jesus and Judas were co-conspirators. They worked together knowingly. That, that this was Jesus' plan, and he needed someone to betray him, and so Judas agreed to it. And the, the Gospel of Judas says that Judas was Jesus' closest friend. <laughs> Then why did Jesus tell us one of you is a devil, <laughs> right? You know, uh, and, and you're betraying me. And what you do, go and do quickly. And then John tells us that he even was the treasurer who was embezzling from the ministry the entire time that they were working together. He was not Jesus' closest friend. He was just as the scripture describes. He betrayed him, and they went into a house. 20, then the multitude came together again so that they could not so much as eat bread. Uh, I've been in a, a crowds a couple of times like that, you know. You need to reach down and you can't, you can't force your hand down through the press to just get to your own pocket to pull out your wallet. Right? You know, you keep trying to test and make sure it's there because, you know, you didn't smush so much that you think somebody might have taken it. This is the idea of what's going on. They, they can't, they're pressed together so hard that they can't even have bread. But when his own people heard about this, they went out 
to lay hold of him. And I refer to this, I think, last week when we were together. His own people. The other Gospels tell us this is his family. This is Mary and his brothers and his sisters that have come to collect him. So when his own people heard about this, they went out to lay hold of him, for they said, he's out of his mind. He's crazy. He's beside himself, is what they were saying. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, he has Beelzebub, and by the rule of demons he casts out demons. Now, this group of scribes coming down from Jerusalem, we're just going to go a few more verses because we're running out of time. But uh, this group that comes down from Jerusalem is an official group. And they have been sent from Jerusalem to review Jesus' ministry and either renounce it or put a stamp of approval upon it. Okay, that's what this occasion contains. The other Gospels give us a little better insight to that. They did this periodically in uh, the ancient world history, where certain teachers, certain rabbis, certain uprisings would occur. The community would get all stirred up in it, and you know everybody's asking of them, uh, you know, should we uh, follow him? Is he legitimate? Is this something we want to pay attention to? And so this is the occasion where they've finally garnished enough concern about, you see, they want to kill him, right? They've already revealed that to us. Uh, they've garnered enough concern about this that now they want to get rid of him. So they come down with an attitude, with a posture, with a public presentation of, okay, let us go down and, and we'll examine this man and we'll tell you whether you should follow him or not. So then they show up and they, they watch and they listen very carefully and they go, nope, it's demonic. Uh, yeah, yeah, okay, right, he's doing good things, he's cast out demons, but he's doing that by the power of the devil. So this is their official public proclamation of denunciation. They, they are making it public that Jesus' ministry is evil and you should have nothing to do with it. Okay, that, that plays into how the rest of this conversation unfolds. You know, the, the fact that it's such an official statement and so strong in its position of renouncing Jesus in his uh, ministry here. So they, they come, they make the same, he does it by the power of uh, demons, the ruler of demons, and... and you know, I, I I don't ever mind being, you know, extreme. Uh, the um, the term they use of Beelzebub, uh, the uh, Lord of the Flies. Okay, um, uh, the the Septuagint actually contains references uh, to. Uh, Gog and uh, particularly uh, Gog, the Lord of the Flies, and you know being equal to Beelzebub, Lord of the Flies. So uh, the flies that they are referring to within the term is uh, poop flies. He's he's. I'll, I'll just say it. He's Lord of Poop. Is is what he? Yes, he does this, but he's doing it. You know, in a modern vernacular, I can't even say what they said. Okay, I will not say what they said. They're they're being incredibly crass and vulgar when they renounce Jesus. He is a Lord of dung. You know, he's you know the power that he has is, is a pile of poop, is what they're saying. I mean, I'm I'm already being offensive and using this terminology, but you gotta understand how offensive what they are saying is to, uh, directly to Jesus but his ministry to us as believers today to the entire picture and, and you know isn't it there's so, there's something about when someone of great dignity and authority uses crass terminology like that like it, it lends a credibility it's it's a weird thing you know if a guy in a three-piece Sue, businessman, lawyer, politician, uses crass terminology like that. We're, I mean, we're shocked, but also, like, you have, his respect demands respect of the shocking term. 
That's what they're doing in this crowd. Send the official delegation. Send the group with the powerful credentials and then have them show up and use grade school gutter mouth terminology to renounce Jesus. It's a really, I mean, this is so calculated. It's, it's really, really evil. But they, they don't come with an open mind, right? We understand that. It's, you know, the people are thinking, oh, look, they're here to examine and see whether Jesus, um, the ministry is legitimate because they're naive and they're sucked in by the robes and the authority and the scrolls and the titles and, oh, you know, the leaders of our religion are here. And now they're flinging around this, you know, terminology that's so vulgar. So insulting. You do this by the power of Beelzebub, by the ruler of demons, he casts out demons. So he called them to himself and he said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan has risen up against Satan himself, I'm adding, and if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but has an end. And now here's where we'll leave off. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. Now, there... There is an inappropriate attachment that Christianity has done when Jesus tells us that what we bind on earth will be bound in heaven, what we loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Um, we don't have authority to supersede heaven. Okay, um, in that statement, Jesus is saying, you know, we, we go from you know, the Christ to um, upon the shock I build my church to I give you the keys to the kingdom and then what you bind on earth uh, will be bound on earth uh, in heaven and what you loose on earth will be loose in heaven Th this strong man being bound um, Jesus is giving us this understanding in regard to the demon possessed they have been enslaved and he is freeing them Right. Uh, if someone is a prisoner, right, it is a miserable, horrible state of existence. No joy, right? It, it is a terrible existence. When set free, right, joy and happiness and fulfillment are at least available, right? <laughs> Many who are in prisons get released from prison only to go into the prison of their sin. Point is, freedom versus liberty, right? Jesus comes to liberate. What they're implying is, yeah, yeah, he delivered them from imprisonment into imprisonment, right? The power of the devil bound them, and now the power of the devil binds them, is, is what they're saying. Yeah, he delivers them, but he does it by the power of the devil. Jesus is saying, look, the devil only provides imprisonment. Okay? So if the devil is working this thing that you're describing, he's not going to set people free. Right? If the devil is doing some sleight of hand thing, you're not going to see any change in that person. You know, oh, cast out the demon, and oh, they're screaming, and oh, they're gone, and oh, I feel so much better, and then you're going to watch, and they're going to be continuing in their imprisonment. And Jesus gives us the explanation later, right? How the demon casts out, goes through the dry state of existence, the desert places, returns to that house, finding it swept, put in order, but unoccupied, goes, finds seven like unto himself, comes back. And the end condition of that person is worse than the beginning, right? So there you see the devil's circular route that takes place and an individual such as that. Jesus is saying, no, the people I deliver are free indeed. They, they, they aren't under, they're not going from a captivity to a captivity, they, they, right? Because who he frees, that house is then occupied by the Holy Spirit. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit dwells in that person. Uh, I'll follow the rabbit trail. 
you know, the people that are saying, oh, well, you know, I had this horrible state of sin and bondage and, you know, Christ delivered me and, you know, now I just, I keep falling back to that. You know, the problem probably isn't demonic, it's probably just you. <laughs> and uh, that may be very disheartening, but, um, you know, you got to face the music, that's how messed up you are, and that's how much help you need from Jesus. You know, you, you need your mind healed, you need your heart healed, right? The renewing of the mind to the Word of God. And so these things need to take place in our lives. Depression, anxiety, uh, you know, sinful behavior, compulsions, addictions. Christ needs to renew that mind, change that mind, uh, make it something uh, uh, different than what it was. Not demonic influence. So here, I know I'm really stretching all these parts out, but, you know, they come back together so we, we can see this thing uh, quite neatly. Overpower Satan. Set them free, they're going to have a new free state of existence. They're not going to be bound under these things anymore. Now, he goes on uh, to talk about uh, you know the spirits, and we'll deal with that next week. I want to just dwell on this binding and loosing in heaven. Jesus says, right, upon this rock, I'll build my kingdom, I'll give you the keys to the kingdom, but you bind on earth, you bound in heaven, loose on earth, loose in heaven. Keys. Keys, not the same keys that we might think of to unlock and set free. Keys instead, like you would find on a map. Okay, so you want to know what what is this symbol on this map? Well, you look down here. Oh, that's a railroad track. What is this symbol on the map? You see the symbol on the map. Look at the key at the bottom. Oh, here is a camping area. Uh, what is this symbol? Highway. What is this symbol? Secondary road. What is this symbol? Right? Bridges. You know, what is this symbol? The key in the corner is telling you. That's what Jesus is saying. I give you the keys to the kingdom. Right? Um, I, I've run out of time, so I'll, to just make the point. There are people today that stand in the pulpit that are telling the congregation gathered together that uh, homosexuality is no longer a sin. Listen. Listen, under the concept that is being inappropriately presented to the church, if they right, loose something on earth, then that would be loosed in heaven. I don't have authority. right? Now think about it in regard to keys on the map. Okay, I can't change the keys on the map. But if that symbol right there says bridge out, Okay? Homosexuality is sin. Period. You're going to crash and die right there. I cannot just redefine that. I can't scratch that out and write next to it, you know, fully intact bridge. <laughs> 60 miles an hour, airborne, crash, dead. Keys, right? I give you the keys to the kingdom that you may bind on earth that it will be bound in heaven, that you may loose upon it. No? Okay, go one step further with this concept. Some people come, and they committed horrible sins in the past, and they sought Christ's forgiveness. So all of the class would say, they are forgiven, right? First John 1, 9. Confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you your sins, cleanse you from all unrighteousness. But so many people function under a burden of past sin. We can say to them, no, you've been loosed. Why? Because they can look right here and see the symbol in 1 John 1, 9. The key to the kingdom says you've been set free. You are no longer guilty. Oh, I feel horribly guilty. doesn't matter. <laughs> Does not matter that you feel guilty, right? Don't let anyone change the key to your kingdom, right? Because you were in the same kingdom... So the devil gets in the mind of the person and they sue for Sean one night and they go, yeah, but not me. <laughs> right? So when it's sin, you know, or something like that, that we say, no, that is bound by heaven. And we here on earth declare to you that it is bound. And someone might argue, and it doesn't matter. It's bound by the key. It's locked into what it is. Right? Oh, it's been set free 
by Jesus Christ's definition, and we have no authority outside of that, right? You can't, you can't be firing the keys down <laughs> to do different things. They, they lock and unlock what they're supposed to lock and unlock. And that, that's as simple as it is. And it is, it is a great sin to go through the process and change any other thing. Jesus Christ has set free this demoniac. And it's not, it's not through demonic behavior. And, and the evidence of the thing is in the freedom that the man has. And, and, and I'll make this point. There are some people who insist, I've been set free by Jesus Christ, and yet you look at their life and you go, well, I don't see any change. Oh, but I'm a Christian. I don't, I don't see any fruit. Right? And Jesus is saying, Matthew chapter 7, right? Judge not, lest you be judged, you know, measure by what you measure out. Then you drop right down and he says, of the false teachers, you will know them by their fruits. Right? So, so being a fruit inspector of ourselves and of others is appropriate. Well, James says, faith that works is dead. You know, you've got to have these corresponding things. If someone says, I'm a Christian, I prayed a prayer in Sunday school, I signed the card. Okay, you did. Where's the fruit in your life? And that's not a, like a judgmental condemning thing. That's a matter of saying, don't deceive yourself. Let me tearfully, heartbrokenly plead with you to examine yourself. And, and look at what's going on. If you, if, you are, if you have not been set free by the Son, then don't declare yourself as having been set free. You are still in bondage. You need Christ's touch. You know, I would say that is a work of the devil. When, when someone thinks they've been set free and they're still under that same bondage. Right? Because Christ's bondage, you know, in Christ's well, bondage, we're slaves to him. Christ's freedom doesn't reflect the old character of sinful behavior at all. So, way past time. Um, we'll pick up there uh, next week. Why don't we uh, stand and we'll pray. And then, uh, you know, next week we'll, we'll pick up at verse 20. Father, we're very grateful for your love, your grace, your work, your word, how that we have read and studied here this evening. Help us, Lord, to follow you. Minister to us. Lord, all of these things that we've read, Lord, may we retain them. Lord, may we share them with others. May we, most importantly, live by them. See your work accomplished in our lives and your kingdom built in us, through us, and by us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.